Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. We are on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from the 1689 Baptist perspective. And uh, one thing that we're interested in as far as being confessional Christians is practical theology and uh, things that relate to uh, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and one important subject that we think relates to practical uh, theology is the subject of biblical counseling or Christian counseling. So in this conversation, we are uh, very thankful for the opportunity that we have to talk with Chris Chimita about a book that he has co-authored called Light Through the Spectrum. Uh, But before we begin to talk about this book and the various uh, topics related in the chapters, uh, we want to welcome Brother Chris to the show. We're very thankful to have him on. Uh, I'll let you introduce yourself before I get ready to do that. I was getting ready to, but at least uh, before you do, I just uh, am very thankful for our friendship, brother. We're very appreciative of all you do and really glad and thankful to know you as a brother in Christ. So can you um, introduce yourself to our audience? Okay, sure. Uh, my name's uh, Chris Chimita. I'm married to my wife, Rachel, for uh, 16 years, and we have a uh, newborn twins at home uh, after years and years of infertility, which has uh, been a blessing. Um, I graduated from Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary about a year and a half ago with a master's degree in theological studies and been a, a certified biblical counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors for about six years now. And was just recently asked to become the associate professor of biblical counseling for Forge Theological Seminary. And uh, I have two books out now. The one we're talking about today is Light Through the Spectrum. And earlier this year, I put out uh, Dark Night of the Soul, which is an exposition of Psalm 88, and it deals with a spiritual depression. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear. And I'm uh, encouraged to hear about the update with your life. We're likewise praising the Lord with you on uh, the update with some of your life circumstances that you just shared. Um, But uh, without further ado, we'll just kind of transition into one of the books that you just mentioned that you co-authored, Light Through the Spectrum. Uh, And to kick off our conversation, uh, you can feel free to take this wherever you want to or however you want to answer it, Uh, even if I don't answer it in the best way. You can... You can kind of divert and answer it however you like. So can you begin our conversation by telling our audience about uh, your interest in biblical counseling? Okay. Um, My interest in biblical counseling started about seven, eight years ago, and where the church we were attending was very involved in it. They were a training center where they trained other churches and other church members throughout the area in biblical counseling. And what really caught my interest in it was it was it took theology and applied it to real life. It didn't just like keep it in the classroom in a book. Then you saw how diving into those biblical truths really, really helped people. And it really grasped the idea of take a presubstantial approach to apologetics. It's a sign mindset you take into counseling, where you see that the word of God is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. So it kind of took all my interest in theology and showed me how to apply it to real life and was a great opportunity to really help people. Um, and at the church, once I got certified, I started counseling there. And how it was set up there was the pastor generally counseled individuals who were church members. But we opened up the counseling to everyone in the community. So we had people from 
all over the area and other churches coming to our church for counseling. And with that, you saw a lot of false conversions. You had a chance to do a lot of witnessing. And it was a great way. It helped grow the church. It helped grow, people grow in their faith in Christ. And you really saw, saw the power of God work in people's lives through counseling. Yeah, so in your interest of counseling, that's led you to uh, write at least yeah. uh, or co-author one book and then write another one. So we want to talk about one that you co-authored. Uh, perhaps it could be helpful to mention who the other author is for the purpose yeah. of our uh, audience since we haven't done that yet. And then after you do that, um, the first chapter of your book is titled a brief overview of the biblical counseling movement. So can you provide us a sketch for uh, that chapter? Okay. Um, the co-author of the book is Michael Burgos. He's a pastor in Connecticut. He's also a, a, a certified biblical counselor. And he's done a lot of great work on witnessing and confronting oneness Pentecostals. And he's a great, great brother. Uh, he reached out to me about three years ago as he was finishing up his, some of his other books, he wanted one to put out one on biblical counseling. So we kind of got together, and that's how the book came about. But before we go there, can we just distinguish between what is biblical counseling and Christian counseling? Because I know a lot of people get confused by that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. When people use the term Christian counseling, they think it's okay because it's in the church or they're using the Bible. But when you really dig into it, not all Christian counseling is really Christian. That's most people who use that term take what we call an integrated approach where they take worldly or secular psychology and mix it in with the Bible. So on the extreme end, it might just be almost no different than going to secular counseling with a few Bible verses thrown in. But at its core, they're using presuppositions that are unbiblical as they approach counseling. Um, for example, they might use a lot of the idea in counseling that you have all the answers within yourself because man is inherently good. So that's why when you see the idea of the guy laying on the couch and the counselor just asking, how do you feel about that over and over again? That comes from the presupposition that we're good and we don't need any truth outside of ourselves. So in a sense, you see that type of philosophy mixed in with the counseling, or you might see some Steven Adler where they say that man is an animal and they, and they mix that in with the counseling and say that man only respond to reward and punishment. But as Christians, we say, well, we are Mago Dei made in the image of God. So we can't take he, his presuppositions and mix it in. But when we say biblical counseling, what we're really talking about is nuthetic counseling, which up until a few years ago, that's what it was referred to. But some of the bigger names in the movement decided to just change it over to biblical counseling because it got tired of explaining what nuthetic meant, which just means to admonish. The one issue that kind of pops up from that is everybody and the brothers sometimes call what they do biblical counseling. So you might see some of the integrationists called biblical counseling, but if you see a lot of the deliverance type uh, ministers who try to cast out demons also called biblical counseling. So I think it's important to distinguish what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a counseling methodology that says the scripture is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient for counseling. We don't need to go outside of the Bible or the Word of God or work men did explaining the Word of God to counsel people. I kind of say that true biblical counseling can be broken down into five points. One, it's scriptural saturated, which means 
the scripture is the basis of our counseling and the authority behind our counseling. And it's also sin-focused is the second point. When we say sin-focused, we don't mean all we do is just beat someone over the head over their sin. It means that we recognize that everybody's problems is due to sin in some way. It could be their sin. It could be they're the victim of someone else's sin. Or the result of living in a sin-falling world with illness, disease, and how we respond to that. We say it's Christ-centered, which means that all of our counsel must point back to Christ as the ultimate answer to all of our problems. We recognize that it's Holy Spirit-empowered which true change only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last one, which kind of separates it from the other counseling, true biblical counseling is church-based, which means it's under the authority of the elders of the local church, which means you have things like church discipline on the table as a tool to help you help someone grow in Christ. And we also recognize that counseling is a means of grace. It's a private ministry of the word of God. So I think that's kind of the big difference between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. Yeah, that distinction, I think, is really helpful, uh, not only for me, but for our listeners to uh, differentiate between uh, what you've described to us as neuthetic counseling or what has also been come to be known as biblical counseling and some other forms of uh, counseling that claim the name Christian, but perhaps have unchristian doctrines at their premise. Yeah. So how did, uh, I'm interested to know more about how neuthetic counseling or uh, biblical counseling came to be uh, not popularized, but uh, articulated in the way that we know it now. So can you uh, give our audience a sketch of uh, the biblical counseling movement? Yeah. Um, When we talk about the biblical counseling movement, we all like to think it's something that Jay Adams invented in the late 1960s, early 1970s. But we actually see the methods and the idea that scripture is sufficient counseling going all the way back through church history. The period of time that kind of pops out the most in our heads is the Puritan era. And you only have to spend a few minutes in any Puritan work to see that they were very practical with their theology. While they took that great head knowledge, they applied it in great ways. We see, I think it was William Bridges' book. I might have the author wrong on that, uh, on about depression on helping the downcast. We see Richard Baxter had the Christian Directory, which was basically a counseling manual in the day. Bunyan wrote books about assurance. We've seen t- throughout all the Puritan works, they didn't just give you theological knowledge. They always applied it to everyday life. A lot of the Puritan ministers were known to go to the homes of all the people in their church and minister them privately through their issues in life. Um, And that was the really big robust area where they were really taking the word of God and applying it to people's lives. Then the really last period of time before it kind of fell out of favor was in the early to mid-1800s. A guy named Ichabod Spencer published a book called Pastor Sketches, which is really just short stories or encounters he had either witnessing or counseling people in his congregation or people in the community. And that was really the last book that was very counseling related that was published. Then we fell into what I would call the dark years, where the counseling or the idea of privately caring for the people in your church with God's word fell out of favor. And there were many reasons for that. First was the revivalism of the 1700s and early 1800s. When you think of the revivalism, you think about the big tents, 
the big events, you know, the big altar call type events where they're calling people to repentance, where that put just the idea on big mass conversions, but there was really no focus on the individual care of souls. You also saw the fundamentalist modernist movement, which the church was so busy fighting for the fundamental truths of the faith, things like the private ministry of the ward started to fall out of favor, out of neglect. Then you saw the psychological revolution, guys like Sigmund Freud. And since its inception, guys like Freud really wanted to try to upseat and remove the church from counseling. He actually opened up with one of the first counseling offices on Easter Sunday for that reason. And there are other reasons that were kind of happening during that time, too, is you had the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Industrial Revolution, where now people were working massive hours. And there wasn't a lot of time being placed into counseling. And then from there, counseling was kind of just handed over from the church to the secular world. Pastors started to practice what was called refer and defer, which when they came, people came to them with any, what they would call big problems, they would just hand them off to psychologists, things like anxiety, depression. And then there was kind of an influx of, in the 60s and 70s, early 80s, of Christian counseling, what we talked about before, that and to try to take that psychology and redeem it in a way by adding some Bible to it. And that's where you got like the New Life Treatment Centers, guys like uh, James Dobson, Focus on the Family, uh, Steve Ardenburn, Henry McLeod, got very popular with best-selling books that were very psychological with a Christian flavor put on them. And that kind of was the go-to thing with Christian counseling for a long time was this kind of mixture of secular psychology and Christian counseling. Then in the late 60s, early 70s, Jay Adams was asked to become a pastor, or I'm sorry, a professor over at Westminster. And one of the units in his course was on Christian counseling. And he was just amazed as when he was looking, none of the sources he found were truly Christian in nature. So he started trying to write his own curriculum. By doing so, by the grace of God, and oddly enough, it was a secular counselor that kind of influenced him in certain ways. A guy named Maurer asked him to be an intern at a few events or at a few hospitals for some short uh, internships. And either Maurer was not a Christian, he took a different approach that was then the flavor that was going on within the secular world. He confronted what he called sin in, the, in his patients. He actually even called him the repentance, not in faith. And he saw changes happening. But Adams, being a Christian, noticed that while they were changing their behavior, those changes were superficial. They weren't true heart change. So that's when he went back and he started diving into the scriptures. And that's when he wrote what was the curriculum first course, which became the book Competent to Counsel, which was published in 1970. Became a huge bestseller in the Christian community. I think they said like 250,000 copies were sold in one year, which is amazing for a Christian book. And But that started a huge infighting within Christian circles. But Jay Adams was the man we needed at that time because he was kind of plowing the field in a world where some of your biggest Christian leaders were saying the Bible is not enough for counseling. So Jay Adams was known to be kind of a harsh man, kind of rough. But he was who we needed at that time to kind of hold the line when everyone was pushing back, saying, a pastor can't counsel. 
They need to hand everything back over to these doctors, these professionals. And that's really started from there. Uh, and he started growing in very short amounts. Uh, Master Seminary played a large role. Uh, that's John MacArthur Seminary. In late 1970s, I believe it was, a man who was being counseled by their church counselors committed suicide with a handgun. His family ended up suing the church for malpractice and pastoral neglect and failure to prevent a suicide. The lawsuit actually won about 10 years before it settled, and the church, John MacArthur, and the pastors were exonerated. But what that lawsuit did was really made masters evaluate what they were doing with counseling. At that time, their counseling in their college was purely integrated Christian counseling. So he brought in Wayne Mack and a Dr. Bob Smith to rejuvenate their program and turn it into a new Thetic Tech approach, which it is today. And then from there, it kind of just kept growing and had periods of ups and downs. But about three or four years ago, ACBC announced that they hit their highest number of certified counselors and they couldn't keep up with the demand of people becoming certified. Their conferences continue to grow more and more. And we're seeing a lot more colleges paying more attention to how they're doing their counseling programs. RTS in Charlotte brought Jim Neuheiser, who is actually a 1689 guy into their program to help rejuvenate their counseling program. I know CBTS is working on a counseling-related program as well. Uh, Reformed Baptist Seminary has one. We're seeing a lot more interest within the community and, and colleges to train their pastors to counsel their people. And that's kind of the thumbnail sketch of how we got where we are today. But there are a lot of areas where I think we still have a lot of room to grow. Because I know in my counseling experience, most of the people I counsel come from outside the church I attend. And what I'm seeing is the reason they're coming at me is so many pastors still refuse to counsel their people. Where they meet with them for a little one meeting for some small problems, but anything that's big, anything that's life dominating, they don't want to touch. They send them out. So I think that's one of the big areas we have is there's still a big mindset within churches today of the pastor is not equipped to counsel. This has been really helpful to consider um, some of the major events or some of the major persons that have been used by the Lord in the revitalization of interest in uh, a counseling method that is founded upon the sufficiencies, the, the sufficiency of the word of God to counsel and a church pastor uh, oriented model of, of counseling. So thank you for your sketch, brother. Um, I also want to transition us on now to another part of the book that you've written. Uh, we do think that the scriptures are sufficient for faith, life, and obedience. And so you have authored a chapter in this book as well called Counseling from the Old Testament. Uh, so how do you direct your uh, readers to counsel from the Old Testament? And uh, what are you trying to communicate in this chapter of the book? Uh, this chapter, like the other one, both actually came from papers that I wrote for CBTS. But uh, this one was really my heart of my love for biblical theology and seeing that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. And so often we kind of just push it off and only read the famous Bible stories, Proverbs and Psalms. 
And I noticed that some, I don't want to say all people within the counseling movement, were only really go to the Old Testament for those in the Proverbs, Psalms, and a few of the more popular passages. But someone who really <clears throat> loves scripture, loves biblical theology, and I, and I look at scripture that God gave us 66 books for a reason. And all 66 of those books are sufficient to help people grow in their knowledge of God and grow in holiness. So as part of it was to kind of point out that we can use all of the scripture. Then I wanted to point out some of the ways people make the mistake when they try to apply it and give some examples of how it can properly be done. Um, didn't get a chance to really expand as much as I would have liked due to space. But as I, <clears throat> we need to look at it as counselors of when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he was referring to mainly the Old Testament at that time because a large part of the Old New Testament had not been written. So we know it applies that the scripture is sufficient in the Old and the New. And as a counselor, I need to have a good understanding of the Old Testament because it's foundational to my counseling. For example, the Old Testament teaches me the proper anthropology or the doctrine of man. It teaches me that we're imago Dei, that every one of us is made in the image of God, that we're not an animal. It also teaches us that we were created by God, which means we are accountable to him. It helps us understand sin of how it entered the world and what happened because it entered. And without the Old Testament, we would have a very truncated view of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So I think the New Testament helps lay that foundation for us to understand some of the stuff we often take for granted as Christians as we move through things. And I also saw that, with the exception of the few parts of the Old Testament I mentioned, so many counselors and Christians in general are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, which is one reason we're not willing to go to it. When we look at a lot of the minor prophets, we're intimidated by it because it's that old, you know, poetic type writing, which I don't know if you're like me when you're in school and you're going through Shakespeare, you hated that. But even with that, they, it's hard to understand it sometimes. You have to put more work into it, but it's worth the effort because we can learn so much. And I think the other is <clears throat> if you look at a lot of counselor training, they tell you that since most people have very limited knowledge of scripture, it's best to use small amounts of scripture when you counsel somebody per session. That can work in the New Testament, but when you go in the Old Testament, you often have to use large portions of scripture in order to apply it and have it make sense. So it's kind of outside of the comfort zone of a lot of counselors. Then I also saw that when it was being used, you saw a lot of improper use. Um, you see a lot of the heroes and villains approach to some of the stories. Uh, David Murray in his book, Jesus on Every Page, has a great explanation of this problem. But that's kind of like, be like David. You know, Don't be like this person when they go to the Bible stories. You know, Where basically you turn people into good and bad examples of behavior. Where they might just go to Joseph and him fleeing Potiphar's wife as an example of why you should flee sexual morality. That's a good example to use, but you can't stop there is the problem. From, you can use that as an example, and you can use that example to bring comfort to somebody who's been falsely accused of something. But you, if you stop there, you're missing the whole point. You can go to passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and show them that 
you know, some problems like false accusations. You're not the only one. These things are common to man, but it's how you respond to it. We can go to Romans 8.28 and show that what's happening to you is horrible. It's painful. It's wrong. But God's going to use it for your good, even if you don't understand it right now. But then we can also point to like Hebrews chapter 4 and talk about how Jesus can relate to what you're going through and provide comfort. How we can use those stories to point to Christ is the most important thing and not just stop there. We also see verses taken out of context. And one, I used this in, in, the, in my chapter because it's been used on my wife and I many, many times going through infertility of the church of like Genesis 17, 16, when God promised Abraham he'll have a child. Is can't tell you how many times people would bring up promises like that to my wife and I say, just be patient. God will give you a child. But when you go into the context of the chapter, he's not promising everybody they're going to have a child. He's probably promising Abraham will have a child. So you, a lot of harm can be done when you take promises meant to an individual and try to apply it as a whole. Um, you, everyone knows Jeremiah 29, 11, about where people take that of, well, God's got these great plans for you. He does have great plans for us, but our great plans are not always his great plans. And a lot of people, and we fail to realize that those were made to those people at that time who come in out of exile. So we have to just be careful with things like that. And I noticed too, when people were using Proverbs, often it's just used as little nuggets of wisdom, which a Jewish rabbi can use, or even a, someone who's not a Christian can say the same thing and not expand from there. I think when we use Proverbs, it gives us great advice, great wisdom, but we often fail to point out that even the Proverbs point to the wise son of Proverbs, Jesus Christ, as a person who fulfilled this, who, who is typified by those. So I think we really need to look at how those help us point to Christ. So then from there, I can move on to what is the proper use of the Old Testament? And what are some examples? Um, one thing is, in the very beginning of counseling, your first session or two, you're really going to focus on, is this person a Christian? Because we say you cannot truly counsel a non-Christian or someone who's an unbelievable because they don't have the counselor in them. So in those cases, you spend a lot of time of evangelism. And I looked at looking at Genesis 1, going that God is the creator. You're accountable to him. I think we often found our evangelism because we don't start with who God is and his greatness. Um, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the Ten Commandments. One thing I found useful, especially when counseling men with uh, sexual immorality, is to have them walk through the Ten Commandments and show them how, how their sin and their giving into their sexual lusts violates more than just one commandment. Um, the book of Judges is really good, too, where you show people how there's that cycle that just keeps repeating, where the people do what's right in their own eyes face severe consequences they cry for deliverance they get delivered by an imperfect deliverer then they just repeat the cycle and we look in our lives we often do the same thing we get ourselves into a mess we say those prayers of just get me out of this god mercifully helps us through that situation then we jump right back into that same pig pen over and over and over again so we can go to judges and show that how that cycle continues and things get worse and worse 
but point that there's an ultimate person to deliver us, which is Jesus Christ. And we can point out that often, especially in this day and age, how often we look to that imperfect person to deliver us. It could be a politician or things along those lines. Um, another great one I like to use is Ezekiel 36, uh, 25 to 27, the passage about the new heart. From there, you get great conversations and you do a lot of really good biblical teaching on forgiveness from verse 25, regeneration from verse 26, and the Holy Spirit indwelling believers in verse 27. Um, Psalm 88 is probably the best passage in the Bible to go some to if you have somebody who's suffering from spiritual depression, especially if they've been suffering for a long time, where they've been praying out to God for relief from some type of situation, but it's not coming. Someone who's got can terminal cancer, someone whose prayers have not been answered. Because that's what's unique about Psalm 88. It's a psalm of lamentation where the psalmist lamented to God about his issues, but it's unique in the Bible because every other psalm of lament at the end of the psalm, God comes through and delivers the person. But Psalm 88 ends with a person still in darkness, where he still has not heard from God. So that's a great psalm to go to to show them that even good Christians don't always have their prayers answered, where they can feel distant from God for a period of time. But then you can go to Jesus on the cross and show them that if you're in Christ, you've not been truly forsaken because he took your punishment for you. Then, of course, uh, we have a lot of charismatic type churches in my area. So it's not uncommon to have some come in and I had this more than once say, you know, everything was going great in my marriage. Then the devil came and made me cheat on my wife. So that's a great time to go to Job 1 to kind of show that the devil can't do anything without permission from God. And really lead into discussion of what is the role of the devil in our sin and how even if he ceased to exist today, you would still sin. And the reason you cheated or committed adultery on your wife is because of the sinful lust in your heart, not the devil. Ecclesiastes is a great book if you have time to actually, through multiple sessions, work through the whole book with a counselee who's obsessed with the world instead of Christ. So those are just some small examples of how we can really use the Old Testament in counseling. And I think it's a great opportunity to dig into the word of God, use the whole counsel of God to care for the souls of people. Amen. Yeah, related to biblical counseling, the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Mm -hmm. We want to speak a little bit about uh, the other testament or all of scripture that the Lord has given to us. Mm -hmm. Although you do not uh, author a chapter in this book uh, uh, related directly to the New Testament, I'm sure you might have mm -hmm. some thoughts about yeah. how to uh, counsel the people of God or at least some. Um, thoughts related to uh, what passages of Scripture yeah. Christians should look to in the New Testament or the New Covenant. So uh, what thoughts do you have about this, brother? I think the New Testament, even though I count, I wrote the chapter on counseling the Old Testament, vast majority of your counseling will be from the New Testament. And the passages really depend on what the problem is itself. But I really focus a lot on Ephesians in chapter 4, starting at verse 17. They talk about the put-off, put-ons. And that's where it talks about, you know, put off lying, put on telling the truth. Because as humans, we are creatures of habit. If we, we always going to replace our behavior with something else. That's why you see the guy who was addicted to crack might now be a chain smoker. 
because he broke one addiction, traded for another one. Might be a better addiction, but he didn't trade it for something good. So the idea of the put off, put on to get from, say, Ephesians chapter 4, is we need to put off the sinful behavior and put on behavior that glorifies Christ. So it's really good to spend a lot of times in that chapter to walk them through what that looks like. Um, a lot of chapters, I really go a lot to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which is about, talks about how no temptation overtakes us that's not common to man, which means your problem is not unique, which does not minimize their sin. It gives you hope knowing that other Christians have gone through it. Then show them how the end of the verse talks about how there's always going to be a way of escape to get through this temptation. You just have to take it. And that God has equipped you to be able to resist this temptation. So those are two really big ones I go to. And uh, we also deal a lot with uh, people struggling with assurance. So with that, I often go to 1 John 2, 1 and 2, to show them that while John, the Apostle John is calling us to holiness in that verse, when he tells us that he's writing things to us so we may not sin, he immediately follows up with, basically, but you're going to sin anyways. So with that, I point to that, that while we're called to holiness, when we do sin, and we see that we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ. So it's shown that, and then it, in the, how that progresses into that he is the propitiation for our sins to show that he took the punishment for your for our sins. So if you're in Christ, when you do sin, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You can have assurance that you're still saved because Christ already paid that punishment for that sin. And then I go to a lot to 2 Corinthians 5.21 as a great example of imputation. Because I think uh, the idea of imputation is a concept that a lot of counselors miss, which really helps someone have assurance of their salvation, of showing that their sins were put on Christ, and then Christ put his holiness, his perfect life, his act of obedience on us. And that, so I think those are kind of the big go-to verses. With with that said, I don't want to make it sound like it's a cookie-cutter approach, of course. This has been a pleasant and enjoyable conversation as we've been thinking about uh, biblical counseling from different perspectives. And so now I just, to kind of uh, bring our conversation to uh, close to an end and try to summing things up, I want to give you the opportunity to offer any uh, final thoughts or encouragements related to anything we've been talking about in our conversation today, whether that's the the history of the biblical counseling movement, um, uh, biblical counseling from the Old Testament or n- the New Testament, or um, you've even talked about distinguishing marks of biblical counseling as opposed to other forms of counseling. So related to any of these subjects that we've been talking about, brother, uh, what summing or encouraging thoughts do you have? I think uh, I think it's important for all Christians to realize that we are all counselors and that we all do counseling every day. It's not something just your pastor or your elders do. If someone in your church ever asked you for advice and you gave them advice, guess what you just did? You provided counsel. So the question is, are you providing biblical counselor or worldly counsel? So I I think it's very important for all Christians to realize that since we're all counselors to some degree, we need to be equipped to use the scriptures. There's many great programs out there. Not all of us are called to become doing in a more organized setting like I do or even need to go get a whole degree. In counseling, um, guys like uh, it's ibcd.org. 
Institute of Biblical Counseling Discipleship. Uh, it was Jim Newheiser used to write it before he went to RTS. Gives you like access to, I want to say, 40, 50 hours of just lectures on using the scriptures to counsel for $100 a year. So uh, if you go to their website, they have all their conference audio for the last so many years on their website for free. And it's all practical looking at anxiety, how we can address anxiety from the Bible, depression. So there's great resources for us to read up on. That way, when someone asks us a question, looks for help, we provide biblical counseling. And with that said, of course, we should never neglect being in the Bible. The more we're in the Bible, the more equipped, the more we know scripture to help people. Then also recognizing there are times where that person probably might be too much for us to handle in the setting like of a friend asking you advice over a cup of coffee. And that's where a more structured counsel comes in with a pastor or someone they recognize in the church. I know there's a debate, especially among Reformed Baptists, about should you get certified in counseling? Um, a lot of people say, well, we don't see certification in the Bible. Um, I think if you're going to actually open up counseling to your community, which I'm a big advocate for, the certification is very important just because it gives some credibility to the community that this person's at least been vetted. Because uh, going through the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, there's some classroom hours, which I don't think is enough hours, which that's not too bad. Then you have to do about a thousand pages of reading, observe 10 hours of counseling, then you get supervised in 50 hours of counseling. And there's two exams that are essay questions, once on counseling, once on theology. So when someone gets certified, they at least show some proficiency. So I think people like that who are certified or pastors are great resources to use for counseling for the bigger problems. And we don't have to go to the world because if we go to the world, they're going to give us worldly solutions. We need to keep everything within the church and not be afraid to reach out to other churches in the area that might be more equipped to handle it. Um, there's a pastor in the area who was a newer pastor, had a very big issue he's never dealt before, reached out to some pastors who did a lot of counseling, and they actually counseled his the people from his church, but they had him sit in with them. So they kind of discipled him of, yeah, this is a big issue. It's serious, but let me show you how to do it. So I think the word of God is sufficient. We should be encouraged to help each other out and to counsel from the word of God. And then that being said, though, I know I put a big emphasis on certification. Just because your counselor is not certified, or I'm sorry, your pastor is not certified, doesn't mean that he's not able to counsel. That's one thing I kind of noticed, too, is sometimes the, someone would come to counsel come into counsel. Well, I didn't ask my pastor to help me because he's not certified. And that's what you have to say. Well, let's go talk to you. Go talk to your pastor first, then come back. Because that's kind of a uh, thing I put in place after a year or two of counseling of if I'm going to counsel you from someone outside of the church, your pastor has to give have knowledge and be OK with you coming. So I would really just push for people to realize you are going to counsel. You should just make sure you're equipped to provide biblical counsel. This has been really helpful. And another question that I thought of uh, as we're summing up is where can we, where can our listeners find your books if they want to uh, read your material? Okay. Um, Light Through the Spectrum, which is this one, is, pub is published by Church Militant. It's on Amazon. Um, and then the other one I published is this one, Dark Night of the Soul. It's, it's a short booklet. It's like 30 pages. That's actually meant for someone who is suffering 
from some type of spiritual depression. So you can get that and give it to your friend. I have it priced at cost. So, and that's also on Amazon. Brother Chris, as always, it has been pleasant and enjoyable to speak with you. Really thankful for um, the wisdom that you've been able to share related to these topics that you have studied and that you are now speaking to and you have written about. Uh, thankful for your willingness to talk about biblical counseling. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, brother. Okay. Thank you, brother. And uh, to our listeners, we do encourage you to check out these books that we could link to in the show notes and consider the important topic of biblical counseling. We hope that this episode will be a useful resource to you. Until next time, we want to wish you grace and peace.